Hello, and welcome to the Old Soul Archaeology Podcast. My name is Michelle Janae. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Are you ready to dig deep? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Point of Departure. My name is Michelle Janae, your host with Old Soul Archaeology. Today we are going to be talking about the power of paradox. Now you might be asking, what does paradox have to do with old soul archaeology? Let me begin by defining paradox for you a little bit before I get into what I do and what paradox has to do with it. A paradox is a logically self-contradictory statement or a statement that runs contrary to one's expectation. It is a statement that, despite apparently valid reasoning from true premises, leads to a seemingly self-contradictory or illogically unacceptable conclusion. It's also known as an antinomy, which is a contradiction between two beliefs or conclusions that are in themselves reasonable. And I think that's important, that specification right there, is that these two contradictory ideas are not structurally or concretely opposed except in our own minds. You may have heard a couple of paradoxes such as it's better to give than receive. You can only keep what you give away. Less is more. I must be cruel to be kind, which is a character statement from one of William Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet specifically. Give versus receive, less versus more, cruelty versus kindness, keeping versus giving away. These concepts seem to be concretely oppositional. What I want to explore throughout this podcast is that many of these concepts are not radically different and opposed, but actually on the same spectrum of a frequency, value, or idea. As an inner wisdom facilitator, The very nature of what I do and the tools I use are paradoxical to consensus thinking. So I'm going to unpack this a bit for you. Consensus, or consensus thinking, has us convinced that reality only consists of what we can see, touch, feel, taste, and smell by our physical senses. Consider, for instance, the words material and immaterial. By definition, They represent the physicality or non-physicality of something. Material has no conflicting definition, at first glance anyways. It's straightforward and matter of fact, not even trying to prove superiority in our consensus thinking because it already has it. The proof is in the definition of immaterial. The onus lies on the word immaterial or our understanding of it to step up to or to prove itself worthy of consideration in the same way we consider the word material. Immaterial's definition is simply unimportant and irrelevant. But if we consider it from its etymological root source, immaterial simply means not material. Our thoughts are not material. Our dreams are not material. Our intuition is not material. Our imagination is not material. And so in that sense, they're all immaterial in the fact that we can't see them, touch them, taste them, smell them, feel them. 
But what we really have to ask ourselves, are they unimportant and irrelevant as our consensus thinking would have us believe? I think not. I think they're very relevant. I think they're very important. And I think it's time to take the immaterial back. So as I was saying, material rules the day and immaterial is ignored and dismissed at best and disparaged at worst, pretty much by default because material has, their, their definitions actually define their worth um, and their superiority or non-superiority. So back to old soul archaeology and what I do and how paradox works into all this. I work with imagery, imagination, intuition, impressions, and inner wisdom in a variety of ways to help my clients gain insight into their lives so that they can initiate healing and transformation within themselves. Imagery, imagination, intuition, impressions, inner wisdom, all considered immaterial by consensus thinking. Another paradox within that statement is the ability for an individual person to initiate healing and transformation without the direct help of an outside expert, healer, doctor, etc. Um, I like to consider myself a facilitator. I want to point you back to yourself. So that's what I do. So I'm going to unpack my tools from my dig bag. Imagery for one, is rarely given a second thought except for in the arena of art. Imagination is relegated to ideas of fantasy and childhood, even childish nonsense. That one has a side note. So even childish and adult in the terms mature and immature are paradoxical, and yet both have a place in our lives. I don't know any adult who's able to ride the roller coasters at Disneyland without being a little bit childish. And I say that in the very best way. Um, we need to embrace that side of us as well. Moving on to intuition. Intuition is hardly considered in our society overall, except for the notion of gut feeling, which is only a small part of the intuitive functions. Other functions, which are even more dismissed and denigrated, are our full range of psychic senses, clairvoyance being the main one, which means clear seeing. It is the most oft-used term, perhaps because seeing is our most prominent physical sense as well. But there's also clairaudience referring to hearing, claircognizance, which is an overall knowing, clairsentience, clear feeling, clairgustance, which is the ability to get a taste impression, and clairalience, a smell impression without having something in our mouth or under our nose. I mention impressions separately regarding my tools because I use guided impressions, what some call guided visualizations, and this could be confused with imagery. So the trouble with the latter term of guided visualizations, while in and of itself is completely reasonable, again, there's, there's a paradox, <laughs> is that it implies a seeing, and some people's inner sense of seeing isn't their strongest, so other impressions must be honored. In fact, I've had a couple of clients that I've worked with who insist that when we do guided visualizations that they don't see anything. So it's my job as the facilitator to encourage them to allow other impressions 
because while I might use the widely accepted term of guided imagery or guided visualizations, it technically accepts the other impressions, but I like to elaborate so that there isn't confusion on the, on the part of my clients. And it's interesting, our words can get in the way um, subconsciously with the people uh, we work with. So if I were to simply say, what do you see? They might reply, I don't see anything. And their emphasis isn't necessarily on see, but their subconscious emphasis is on see. And so sometimes nothing comes up or, or it seems that way. And if I bring the focus out to impressions, it allows for a whole lot more information to come in for them during our sessions. Lastly, inner wisdom of course, encompassing all of these imagery, imagination, intuition, and impressions, but considered simply for what it is, has been put to sleep since about the 17th century when one was expected to consult a priest, a king, or some other accepted external authority for advice or guidance on pretty much any life decision. People couldn't legally visit their village shaman, witch, wise woman, soothsayer, psychic, healer, seer, or even a midwife, much less rely on their own gifts of inner wisdom. While there is a growing interest and in acceptance of these concepts in some circles, in the general public, it's still what I call the elephant in the room, not talked about much in friendly conversation, and certainly not taught or respected in the vast majority of our traditional educational materials. I recently published a podcast called The Elephant in the Room that you might want to check out that goes more depth into these topics that we don't discuss, but more and more people are waking up to. A great quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, The Crack Up, illustrates the embrace of paradox. He said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Unfortunately, we haven't been taught to do this but we can still choose to open our minds and learn and embrace what is called and thinking. What is and thinking? We are used to versus thinking. It's an either or thinking that by appearances seems reasonable and logical. And thinking, also called paradox thinking, is a both and approach that allows for an exploration of seeming contradictions. It requires a shift in how we approach the world. Just as Fitzgerald said, with two opposed ideas, we must have and thinking in order to retain the ability to function, because otherwise we can't hold them both in our mind. When we choose the either or, we essentially hold the one or the other, and that is how we function. So in order to function with both, we have to embrace this new mode it's not even a new mode, but it's a seemingly new mode because it's, it's been um, basically blocked from our educational model. But we must em embrace this mode of and thinking or paradox thinking. So let's talk for a minute about either or thinking. You already know what it is, perhaps subconsciously, because you do it all the time. It's the way we were taught to think for the most part. But explaining it here helps us to be more aware of it so that we can further explore and thinking, we can begin to recognize the one in order to be open to the other. So over the next week or so, I want you to 
catch yourself when you're in the either or thinking. And generally, there's another way you might consider it. It's right, wrong thinking. As if my answer is right, your answer is wrong. Or, oh, I'd hate to be wrong. We have such a focus on being right that it really blocks our ability to, one, understand ourselves, and two, see other points of view and understand the, the people that hold them. We honestly can't afford to think either or anymore. Either or means that one or the other side is right, which means that the other side is wrong. I bet you see this on Facebook all the time. Either or thinking is exclusive and therefore pits us against each other. Let's face it, even if you and I agree on something, one thing right now, therefore both being in the right, there is inevitably something else we don't agree on which then puts us on either side of a barbed wire fence. I see this on Facebook all the time. Like I said, our focus on right versus wrong is more evident than ever in political, social, religious, economic, and other discussions. Sometimes, as a result of this thinking, discussions aren't even had. The two seemingly disparate sides just simply take their positions of standoff. By the way, our media loves to drive either-or and right-wrong thinking. John Kenneth Galbraith once said, Faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving that there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy on the proof. Another way to say that is that, is that if you argue for your limitations, you get to keep them. Richard Bach, author of Jonathan Livingston Siegel, put it this way, argue for your limitations and sure enough, they're yours. But there's a challenge here and the challenge is that we don't necessarily see that we are arguing for limitations. To us, they're perfectly reasonable thought forms. They're not limitations. We are made to think that there is a certain sense of freedom in being right, and we therefore think that the person who is wrong is the one who is trapped. Right or wrong, without an open mind, we're all trapped. You can be right about something and still be trapped in a limited view of what is entirely right about something, of what might be right, in, at least in some way, about what you perceive to be wrong. And thinking, or embracing paradox, requires an open mind, being a seeker, and letting go of the need to be right. This isn't always easy to do. Sometimes it happens quite unconsciously, because our entire education system focuses on coming to the right answers, and worse yet, a focus on coming to some external and predetermined right answer. Little regard is given to what is right for you. And thinking is inclusive, not exclusive. In our volatile times, we definitely need more of that. Instead, we are mostly exchanging the one side of the either-or equation for the other. What if we don't have to choose between apparent conflicting needs? Our body shows us that we don't have to. Now, it's kind of an out-there example, but in, in essence, it works and can be a model for us. Our body has an inherent need to inhale, to draw life-giving, nurturing oxygen in, and an inherent need to exhale, to let go of bodily toxins and prepare for the next inhale. You might have never considered this, but they are conflicting needs in the sense that they are opposites, in versus out. 
For us to have life, we must do both. Fortunately for us, our bodies don't get hung up on the paradox of opposites, but has a natural system that allows for them both. Other paradoxes in our lives require much more awareness, consideration, and effort. Paradox thinking is and thinking. Thinking that identifies pairs of opposites or seeming opposites and, and determines how they're interdependent relative to a key goal. The easiest way to embrace paradox thinking is simply to consider right versus wrong and open up thinking to consider where some aspects of what is right might not be wholly right and where some aspects of what is wrong might not be wholly wrong. Unfortunately, most social discussions these days don't allow for variations in the rhetoric. In politics, for example, if someone is Republican and embraces one or a few core conservative values, then it is automatically assumed that they don't support any issues on the Democrat side and that they are diehard fans of President Trump. In the reverse, if someone is Democrat and embraces one or a few core progressive or liberal values, then it is automatically assumed that they don't support any issues on the Republican side and that there is absolutely nothing good at all to say about the current administration. This is inherently untrue. As much as we want to argue, and we might be in our right versus wrong standoff, it is inherently untrue that any administration or any political party is wholly good or wholly bad. In religion, we see the same thing, and it often comes down to terminology difference for the same or similar concepts. For example, some Christians espouse the possibility, probability of the rapture. Some New Age thinkers espouse the possibility or probability of an ascension. In my studies, they are very, very similar, parallel, if not the same idea. But we get caught up simply in terminology. And if the terminology is Christian, it's good. And if it's New Age, it's bad or vice versa. And that's just two examples, one in politics and one in religion. And we do this all the time in so many ways. So what if they are both right? What if they are both wrong? What if there are parts of it that are right and parts of it that are wrong? I think it's really important that we expand our thinking. We can't be lazy about our thinking and get along in this world. I won't go into further political or religious examples at this time because I simply wanted to illustrate how our lack of paradox thinking keeps us from healing and transforming our lives with our own person and with others. We suffer, our relationships suffer, our communities suffer, and our world suffers because we've been literally taught to be divisive. We aren't even conscious of it. We are simply standing on what we <clears throat> know to be right. Paradox thinking allows us to let go of being right and truly being open to expanded possibilities. While not directly related to paradox thinking, I want to share the following anecdote. I am currently in the middle of coursework for cognitive behavioral therapy practitioner certification. I really liked it when the, the instructor said, if you're furiously taking notes, stop right now. This isn't about passing the test. I simply want you to listen to what I have to say, consider it and take what works for you and integrate it into your life. Let go of anything that doesn't work for you at this time. You might come back to it at some other place in your life via this or other means, and it may resonate then, and it may not. 
This anecdote helps us to see how our education system has pigeonholed us and how we can in the future remain open to concepts that seem contradictory to our held ideas and beliefs. Our education system currently wants us to take furious notes and pass the test, get the right answer. And yet, the paradox is that perhaps we might take some notes, but we might simply listen and allow the information to become embodied in a sense, not just on paper, um, but integrated into our lives where it can have the most meaning. One other thing that this instructor had said was that it wasn't about the intellectual content of what was in someone's brain, but how they were able to practice it in order to help other people. While our education system doesn't teach much paradox thinking or critical thinking at all, to be fair, I want to embrace paradoxical thinking for a minute and say that our education system is not all bad. I'm not completely against our educational system. There are really great things about it. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the bathwater could definitely stand for a renewal, maybe a little warmer. Different bathtub too, maybe. Maybe it's outdated. Let's, for a minute, talk about what principles our education system was founded on. It will help us understand why our education is what it is today so that we can perhaps embrace the positives and transform the negatives. Interestingly enough, our early education was really college prep. And it has undergone a transformation because a different education model was needed for the industrial societies that were burgeoning in the early 19th century. The problem is that it has not really transformed again since then, although there have been some changes. The core of our education remains the same. The precursor to today's education, now called in many places factory schools, originated in early 19th century Prussia. While there were public schools prior to this, like I mentioned, they were focused on higher learning. Now, though, for the first time, education was provided by the state and learning was regimented. Dozens of students at a time were placed in grades according to their age and moved through successive grades as they mastered the predetermined curriculum. They took an industrialized approach to education, impersonal, efficient, and standardized. I'm imagining an assembly line for building automobiles, which is exactly the type of work the education was preparing them for. So again, not much has changed at the base level of our educational systems. They now include the higher education of the former era, but they are looking for a compliant workforce. Not for the era of factory work necessarily, but of the present need for systematized commerce. Indeed, while art, sports, literature, and other right-brained and alternative pursuits were introduced for a time, they are again being systematically removed from the lower levels of education with the argument that there is not enough funding. In our education system, there is an ever-increasing focus on testing, referred to as standardized testing, and that just means put people in front of pieces of paper and condition them to get the right answers. Even though we have an illusion of a free will in education, it is often nothing more than glorified conditioning of versus thinking. And of course, only what is taught in school is right. If you are conditioned not to question your teacher and your priest, you are less likely to question your boss or your governor. 
Still, as a lifelong learner, albeit mostly autodidactic and self-taught, I believe there is much good to say about our education system, especially when done comparatively to less fortunate nations. What is needed, however, is open-ended discussion about how what is good for the goose isn't always good for the gander. Education can't be standardized. It can't be the same in this community and in the next community because they have different needs. It can't be the same in this country and in that country because they have different needs. It can't even be the same for this person and that person because they have different needs and learning styles and interests. Standardized is not always the best way to approach the human race, which is anything but standard. Regardless of the paradoxical topic we are addressing, it is imperative that we begin to open our minds and hearts to a spectrum of things. The late physicist Erwin Schrodinger said, it takes at least 50 years before a major scientific discovery penetrates the public consciousness. He passed away 60 years ago or so. With our technological advances today, we are progressing faster and faster and making new discoveries all the time. I don't think we have 50 years to catch up anymore. There is a need for paradoxical thinking at this very moment. There's a need to really look at how we approach everything in life, how we approach our institutions, how we approach our systems. And, and I'm not even talking about what's being invented today. I'm talking about the concept of this need for revamped education, which people have known about for a long time. The ideas need to catch on with the general public so that we can institute change. And while there's a lot of energy out there about change, unfortunately, in many ways, it is still right versus wrong. So just for kicks and giggles, I wrote up what I think this 50-year process looks like. So consider for a moment. Number one, there's a new discovery, often proving a principle that has been already accepted by mystics and or indigenous or ancient societies or other people in the know. Two, academia resists. The scientist or researcher is often ridiculed, dismissed, and sometimes even blacklisted. Three, with persistence, the scientist or researcher, the one who doesn't decide to just kowtow to the social consensus, might publish into an industry-specific journal, which is not generally uh, widely available to the public. Four, with more research and collective discoveries, a blog might begin and maybe a book or two is written expanding on the findings of this researcher along with the findings of others. I say collective discoveries because generally things don't happen in a vacuum. At the same time, um, the concept of electricity was being explored by Edison. It was also being explored by Tesla and very possibly being explored by many other scientists who just didn't win the race to be first in the news or to be in the history books, etc. But when they become collaborative to get an idea out, that's when these books start to be written and the information begins to be disseminated. So that takes us to number five. A small public maybe followers of these researchers, what you might call a fringe public, begins to read about and consider and accept these new ideas, but are considered the people of the tin hat. <laughs> sometimes they're just labeled conspiracy theorists. Sometimes they're just called crazy 
for that matter. Six, slowly, very slowly, the general public begins to accept new concepts. Unfortunately, at this level, level six, it is still an elephant in the room. It is still something that, although is more and more widely accepted, it is generally not consensually accepted. It is not always talked about in polite conversation because we assume that the consensual thinking must be the way the other person thinks and we're so conditioned to resist judgment and isolation that we fail to have conversations about it. And then at the same time, now we're at level seven, which isn't really a level at all, but just a general statement for the way things are. The, uh, there's still the elephant in the room because, meanwhile, our textbooks are still grossly outdated. All you have to do is look at, look at the history of slavery in America or the history of who discovered America as two examples of how this happens. This is just within the area of history, historical context, which isn't really a new discovery or new science or anything like that. So, but it happens across the range of, of our approaches to life. And the answer isn't necessarily, necessarily to swing the, the pendulum entirely the other way. It's really to be holistic in our view of things. It's not necessarily to badmouth Columbus and his efforts. He wasn't a perfect man, for sure, but just because he's been written into the history books erroneously as the first man to discover America doesn't mean he didn't have important contributions to make. He was a product of his time. Paradox thinking supplements what we assume to be normal thinking, which is linear thinking. The secret isn't to simply replace linear thinking, like I said, don't swing the pendulum entirely the other way, but be open to adding the intuitive thinking to our thought process. Again, it's not either or, but both and. It's full consciousness thinking. As a matter of showing you some practice, I want to explore a couple of the paradoxical statements I mentioned in the beginning and challenge your thinking. First, it's better to give than receive. This is so pronounced in our society, in our religious doctrine, in just society in general. But giving and receiving is like breathing in and out. If I am to be a giver, I must have someone to receive the gift for it to complete its cycle. It doesn't do any of us any good to give and give and give and give if no one is there to receive. And certainly, we don't want to all be takers in the sense that we don't appreciate and aren't grateful for the gifts. The giving-receiving cycle is holistic and it's whole. And again, I have explored the giving versus receiving in a blog post called With an Open Hand on my website. And I'll probably address it exclusively in an upcoming podcast episode. Here's another one. Less is more. If you accept that outright, there could be problems. Less is more except when it isn't. Sometimes less is simply less. But both statements can be true depending on context. We certainly have more material things than we need in life, and getting rid of some of those things can simply can simplify our life and give us more time, more energy, more quality of life. On the other hand, when there is not enough to eat, speaking of extreme poverty and hunger, less is definitely less. 
Gandhi said, whatever you do will be insignificant, but it's very important that you do it. Now it's interesting, I like to take again this, this idea of significant versus insignificant. Whenever there's an I-N in front of a word, what, like immaterial, and that's an I-M, but you get the gist, it's significant versus insignificant, material versus immaterial, those types of words always catch my eye now because I like to see how we can approach them with paradox thinking. So again, whatever you do will be insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. And sometimes the insignificant is significant. Interestingly, humans are meaning-making machines. We decide within ourselves what gives us meaning and what doesn't. Sometimes things are given uh, or collectively given meaning. So I'm sure at times Gandhi felt that what he was doing for his people in India was very insignificant, and yet look at the significance today. John Lennon said, it's weird not to be weird. Now, I, I'm a huge fan of the word weird because that's one of the words that has decayed over time, and I'll blame this one on Shakespeare. As much, as, as much of a genius as he was in his writing and his use of paradox, he ruined the word weird for us. Weird, originally spelled W-Y-R-D, meant a becoming, to become, to be who you are. If you were weird, you were yourself. You were authentic. In Shakespeare's writing, he described the three fates, or the three uh, sisters, the witches, as being weird, grotesque, deformed, ugly, different. And so weird decayed into this idea of strange, unusual, and unacceptable. So it's weird not to be weird. Now I agree with that statement if you say it's weird, W-E-I-R-D, it's strange not to be weird, W-Y-R-D, yourself. <laughs> I know, that was, that was way out there. I invite you to back up and listen to that again because the concept is really important, but <laughs> it's a lot to take in. Albert Einstein said, life is a preparation for the future, and the best preparation for the future is to live as if there were none. Wow, if there isn't paradox in that. And if you want to explore that one further, one, you can just give it some thought. Ponder it like a, a koan. Determine what that might mean for you. But another way to explore that is to look at the concept widely being discussed by Eckhart Tolle and others about living in the now and the power of that. So I'll go on to say that the trouble with our status quo thinking, just another way to think, uh, to describe our current trend of either or thinking, is that it's comfortable. You've heard that saying, everyone is doing it. So it appears that it's trendy to think linearly, although we don't think of trends as lasting 300 years, but it's time for this fashion statement to evolve. We must evolve our thinking to something that isn't trendy, but smart, and that something is integrated thinking. And that something is integrated thinking, whole brain thinking, and thinking, paradox thinking. To stay in the either or, 
right or wrong thinking is to remain in, in turmoil, both within ourselves and with each other. Our mode of thinking largely determines how we see the world and therefore our quality of life and living. If you're interested in the tools I use, imagery, imagination, intuition, impressions, and inner wisdom to work with your own thinking, visit my website and click on the Dig Deep heading. Book a complimentary 30-minute consultation with me today. It just might empower you to change your life for the better. In closing, consider this paradoxical quote by George Bernard Shaw, a man of controversy and paradox himself. Focus on his emphasis on reasonable and unreasonable. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Thank you for tuning in today. This has been Point of Departure, our focus on the power of paradox. My name is Michelle Janae with Old Soul Archaeology. Until next time, dig deep.